Straight from the hard, cold region of northeastern Pennsylvania. The podcast by coaches for coaches. Welcome to Bandbox Baseball with your hosts, Corey Nido and Paul McGloin. Now let's hit the field running. Hey fans, welcome back to another podcast of Bandbox Baseball. I'm Paul McGloin, joined with Corey Nido. Corey, how are you today? Doing well, Paul. How are you? Doing well, thanks. I'm excited about our guest today. We have Scott Brown, who's uh, taken a little bit of a different path, pitched at Portland University, and from there went out to John's to Vanderbilt University, where he's had a ton of success each of his first three years there. He's had a freshman All-American since his arrival. They've led the nation in total strikeouts, tons of draft kids, uh, two national championships. So looking forward to a good talk with him today to see what we can gather from his background in pitching and how he can help us learn a bit more about pitching today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, looking forward to learning more about the pitching philosophies that you mentioned. Our guests so far have been great. I think this one is the first one to truly diving into pitching. We've talked about catching and hitting and recruiting. And we're looking forward to learning more about the uh, pitching aspect of the game today. All right. Without further ado, uh, we'll call him in. Scott, thanks so much for coming on. I know you're a super busy guy. And this, fortunately for us, is the right time of the year, hopefully, to try and get coaches to come on. So just wanted to, again, thanks so much for coming on with us tonight. Oh, thank you guys for having me. It's an honor to be here and speak right. to you guys. So uh, why don't I get everything in a nutshell here? You're All-American at Cortland. After you finished playing at Cortland, you were coached there for four years. From there, you went to St. John's. From St. John's, you went to Vandy, correct? Yeah, that's the route I've taken. <laughs> Associate head coach at Vandy. Since you've been there, 28 pitchers drafted in eight years, nine All-Americans. The staff has led the nation in total strikeouts the last eight years, two national championships. The rest is history. That's, how it's all, that's the, the point we're at right now. It seems like that all went pretty fast, huh? Well, I think anything in life really goes fast when you start to think about it, you know. So, um, you know, those are kind words and everything. I appreciate it. But I think that, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, knowing is you just you have the opportunity to, you know, coach a lot of really good pitchers, you know. So I'm very fortunate to have had that experience. You know what the thing that excites me the most about you? You you pitch Division three baseball and you're the pitching coach of Andy. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot has changed in, you know, the 25 years, I don't want to date myself, that I, since I've pitched in college baseball or whatever it may have been. Um, you know, recruitment's a lot different. And, you know, I think when you really look at, at coaching in general, it's just about managing personalities and it's being creative. And, you know, I, you know, as Coach Corbin has told me, and, you know, a lot of coaches that come from smaller type settings have learned the ability to, you know, make a lot out of a little. And, um, you know, and that comes with that creative gene. You know, pitching at, at SUNY Cortland was, you know, an awesome experience at that time. And, you know, I'm sure it's an even better place now. But, you know, we, were, we, didn't, have, we didn't have a lot of resources. You know, we just had each other, had good relationships. And, you know, it's probably that place and the, and the teammates I had and the experiences on the field along with, you know, the education at the Zed Department has probably really, really assisted me in my, my growth as a college coach. Well, it was something that, and the reason I bring that up, and uh, it's a, I hope you take it as a compliment, no other way. But the reason I bring that up is be, is because I was in my travels. Not that I want to talk about myself, but I was division one pitching coach for two years. I'm dating myself, but oh one oh three, and it was tough to get in because it almost made it seem like you had to. I was a division three pitcher, and it makes it seem like you had to have that inroad back 
back then to try to get in. And one of the things we mentioned in our last podcast was how it's changed. And again, I don't want to be repetitive and talk about what we talked about last time, but I think it's worth mentioning here because your big name is now professional teams are coming into college and trying to hire the best college pitching coach that they could find, guys that have done a great job with what they've been dealt. And it just seems to me like 20 years ago, you didn't see that in football. You didn't see that in basketball. But unfortunately, there was almost an elitist mentality with professional baseball where you had to have been a professional player if you wanted to become a professional coach. And I'm glad that mindset's changed. And I'm, I'm happy for you because of where you've gotten. And not that I'll call you a friend, but it's not that we're great friends and we talk every day, but I'm more proud of you from the fact that you didn't have to be a big-name guy to prove that you could be an exceptional pitching coach. Well, again, Paul, those are those are really kind words. You know, I think you know, I think one of the things that you know, to me, coaching, and this could be totally off base, but in my experiences, I just you know, wherever I've coached at, whether it's Cortland or St. John's and and now Vanderbilt, I mean, to me, coaching is all about managing the player, and it's it's really human human relationships. And you know, I think Major League Baseball, if I had to guess, is you know really has seen the benefits of understanding both sides of, you know, understanding analytics and understand coaching and all that stuff. So I think there's probably, you know, that's probably the attraction right now for the college coach because, you know, in order to be skilled in both departments, you have to be able to dummy down the information or, you know, break it down for the player so they can understand it, you know, and, and you know, when you've, you've had multiple experiences that with, with all of it, it probably becomes more attractive to a major league team because ultimately the pitcher, the athlete, whoever we're talking about, they just want the information in terms they can understand. They they want a coach that can mentor them. They want a coach that can, you know, keep them between the, between the lines, so to speak. It's almost like being a rear view mirror for them, you know, because really they're driving the bus. They're, they're the director of their career. You know, we're, we're here mm-hmm. to provide them with information and assistance that could help them propel and maybe go, you know, go forward a little bit more and, and have a, you know, a much better experience. But at the end of the day, you know, it really comes down to your ability to, to give them the information that they need to be successful. And at the same time, you know, how you manage their personality and your relationship and their work ethic, you know, that keeps the experience where it needs to be. So it can be enjoyable. Getting into nuts and bolts of it, Scott, I know Coach Corbin, a legend in his own right, has a way where he evaluates hitters. That gives them a, a type of worksheet when he comes in because you're getting kids this, these days from so many different influences. What do you do when a pitcher first gets to campus? Is there any type of soft value? And I, obviously I know that you know what their mechanics are like. You understand what type of kid they are, what they do well, what they need to work on. But what type of introductory work do you do with pitchers when they get on campus? Well, the first thing I do when pitchers arrive is I, I sit down with them and I talk to them about their experiences, you know, that they've brought into Vanderbilt because the biggest thing that I want, I don't want them to lose are the experiences they've had because baseball and really any sport is about the, you know, is the ability to, to put together experiences and reflect upon them and, and obviously use them in an advantageous way when you're going forward. So, um, and, and maybe this is different than some coaches. I'm not sure, but my philosophy on training pitchers is 
I really want them to have as much ownership in in their development as I do. I don't, you know, and if not, I, I really I want them to have more because, you know, I, I want them to to really enjoy being around me and 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 want to be around me and, and seek knowledge. But I, I don't want them to rely on me. I really don't. And you know, I want them at the end of the day to say, you know what, I I really really had a you know a real great experience there with Coach Brown and. But at the same time, I, I really don't need him. He's there if I need him. It's almost like a parent, you know, as we grow grow older, you, you know, you learn to rely on your parents less, but you love them more. And and really that's the philosophy I take, you know, because if I don't give them the keys to the car, you know, and help them learn, they're, they're really, I'm not sure if learning's taking place and I'm not sure, you know, if and when they do get a chance to play professional baseball, that they're going to, you know, be equipped with the tools to navigate that world because there's going to be a lot of different personalities. They have to have ownership for that. So really the first thing I do is I learn a lot about them. What do they like to do training-wise, you know, as far as what's your movement prep look like? What are your throwing programs look like? What do you – what type of arm care do you have? What's your pitch package look like? What are you trying to do? And it's really just questions and answers, you know. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you like to strength train? What's your experience with strength training? What's your experience with movement coordination? You know, and all those types of things. And then you just – we basically put together a profile, player development profile that just it gives us the information, and, and we have a program that does that. And then we build from there. We really just build. It's you know, it's subtracting some things, um, it's adding some things, it's communication. You know, I know you did that drill in high school before you arrived. Why do you do that drill? Uh, mm. It really makes me feel good. I mean, and it can be a drill that you know as a coach, your experience that has really no bearing on anything, and it's really over-exaggerated, but it makes them feel good. So if you're going to take it away, you better be real sure that they're still going to feel good because the psyche is an important piece of this too. So, um, And that's just – it gives them ownership. If I, I tell them at the end of the meeting, I'm, you know, I say to them right away, don't wait on me to change your pitching career. You know, I'm here as a resource, and I'm here to, you know, like I said, provide you structure and, and be a rearview mirror, but – don't wait on me, and really don't wait on anybody. This is you. You're the director of this, This, you know. You're not an actor. You're a director. You, you take charge of this, okay? It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to be unknowing, but you just want to make sure that you're in charge and you have a say and you believe in it. You've had some success uh, with those freshman pitchers coming in. First three years, you've had a freshman All-American on the staff. Just what are some of those biggest adjustments that those seniors in high school coming to your program have to make when they join Vanderbilt? There's, there's quite a few, actually. I mean, I think the first thing is understanding that you can't just throw your fastball at the, you know, in the SEC, you know, the collegiate level. You know, guys can hit fastballs now. You, you're going to have to pitch. You're going to have to be able to execute secondary stuff for strikes behind an account. You're going to have to be able to put away guys with secondary stuff. You're going to have to be able to command your fastball late in the count you know, to execute and put away guys. And I think, you know, it's no longer high school count pitching, you know, where I'm going to get ahead of my fastball and I'm going to, you know, put you away with my breaking ball type deal. You know, there's there, there's sequencing that needs to take place. And you just you need to learn that you don't necessarily have to do anything physically better. You don't. And I think that's where a lot of amateur pitchers run into trouble is they – they try to do things physically better. Um, you know, I actually today was talking to Jack Flaherty of the Cardinals. He stopped in. Uh, he just happened to be in town. He popped in. He wanted to throw here. 
And, I, you know, I, I'd known him from previous years, and I asked him, I said, what has changed? You know, you, you were dominant in the second half. And he told me, he said, I just, I just started trusting my stuff. And we've heard this so many times. I just started throwing every pitch with conviction. And I understood that I don't have to do anything more physically. You know, I can throw 95, 96. By the fourth inning, I'm tired. In the fifth, you know, in the fifth inning, the third time through the order, I'm out of gas. It's not because I can't go through the order three times. It's because I've worn myself down. So, you know, the ability to find a cruising, you know, level to pitch at with your velocity and then reach back when you need it or empty the tank when you got to finish something, you know, those types of things. Those are things that freshmen really need to learn. And, you know, sometimes they, they don't, and, and, and it takes experiences to do that. You know, and along with, with that, they, you know, really an understanding of building position and holding runners. But the biggest thing out of all that, and I kind of touched on it a little bit with what Jack said today, is it's a mentality. It's, it's understanding that there's, you need to, there's an emotional stability that needs to take place, you know, when you pitch. You can't pitch with anger. You're going to run out of juice. It's going to happen. Uh, you, you got to, you know, you, that, that, don't mistake, like, being intentful and focused with anger. And, you know, conviction is just being committed to what you're doing and trusting it. And I think that that's guys that have pitched as freshmen and had a lot of success, they have, they have basically shortened the learning curve on that aspect more than anything else. Awesome. One of the things I, you had mentioned prior to Corey asking the question was, I like the. I just wanted to throw that back out there because I think it's key for anybody that's listening. How you had mentioned that the players have to take ownership of their own development. And you and I, when our early twenties, I'm sure at some point you would have probably gone to, to the coach's clinic in Cherry Hill, run by Jack Hawkins. Remember that? I have never been to Cherry Hill. Yeah. <laughs> well, God rest his soul. He read a great one. And you know, when you're, early, you're I'm 22, 23, 24, and a guy named Gary Dembo. I'll never forget at the time. Well, I don't know where he is now. Was the uh, heading coach of the Yankees, and he just said that it's so important to him when he does individual work with hitters to make sure that they're involved in the process. Meaning, he'll walk up to you and say, "Scott, what are we working on today? What areas are we going to concentrate on to improve as a hitter today?" And I, and I think there's just a difference between players. Players want to be coached, but I think there's a difference between players that want to be coached versus being told what to do. It's the same thing that we've all said to these kids: is you got to be your own best pitching coach. Even you, you have a limited amount of visits to the mound, and they have to learn to be able to make those adjustments on your own because, like you said, it's parenting. You're not always going to be there. They have to be able to take accountability for themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I, – I really think it's the most important aspect of, you know, really anything in life. I mean, you, you, know, you know when you see a confident, consistent individual that they don't rely on other people – in their life. They, they have people that they certainly care about and support them and assist them in aspects, but if, if somebody doesn't show up, they just carry on, you know, and right. a guy like LeBron James, I'm sure he has a personal trainer that helps him. I don't know this to be true, but I'm sure he has somebody that helps him in, you know, whether it's soft tissue or his agility or whatever aspect it is, but if he doesn't show up, I'm real certain that LeBron has the ability to get himself where he needs to be to play on a given night, you know, and, right. and I think that that those are those are big attributes, you know, and you know that's where we we really have to be careful in this day and age because there's a lot of really good training out there. There's a lot of really good training facilities. There's a lot of really good coaches. There's a lot of really good people that all mean well. But what happens to the athlete is, you know, there's millions of different ways to skin a cat and a million different ways to say things. And what happens when you start chasing the wrong things and relying on other people for your career? 
you get lost, you know. Mm-hmm. The greatest athletes of all time, you know, just talk about how simple it is for them. And it's, it's really a lot easier said than done. There's no question about it because they want to be great and they want to be perfect. So, they, you know, they, they misconstrue that for work and work ethic and stuff like that. But the ability to just know and understand yourself in order to get to that level, because that's what ultimately they all say. Like Tom Brady, they don't throw on some, some very special athletes, but you know, Tom Brady knows himself, and he probably knew himself 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, where a young quarterback right now in the NFL, he might not know himself to the level that, that Tom does. But eventually they get to that point. You see guys that start their careers slowly, and, and, and a guy like today, I just talked to Jack Flaherty, be a guy like that, you know, he didn't really understand himself. He was a young high school kid into professional baseball. You know, was unknowing, naive, had been a position player turned pitcher. It took him some time to really understand his body and himself. And if you don't give the athlete the ability to do that, how are they ever going to learn that? That's a great point. Now, all, all those things being said leading up to a pitcher's arrival on campus, introduction into Vanderbilt baseball, one of the things I really wanted to ask you was, what do you do for your throwing program? When you get into a practice, position players come in, pitchers come in. Do you, I'm sure you have a throwing program for your pitchers, but is it something that the, the entire staff does, or is it individualized per pitcher? Well, everything I do is very individualized. Everything's hyper personalized. You know, we'll uh-huh. we'll go through on a daily basis. We we stretch as a team. The team component is huge to us here. You know, and uh-huh. and I think it's something that's changed, maybe in how I view things since I first started coaching. Because I know pitchers need to maybe do a little bit different prep work than position players. So I always thought that they should just do that on their own. But I do really believe in the team aspect, getting together, getting started together, and you know we. <clears throat> So from there, that's when we go into our specialty where, you know, we'll get into our individual movement preps. And all of their individual movement prep is it's written down on, you know, in their, in their player profile. It's, it's not something that's just guessed on. It's, it's talked about. It's in conjunction with our trainer, our physical therapist, and, and with our strength coach and obviously myself and, more importantly, the pitcher, as we've talked about. So, um, you know, and that's a lot of – that could be anything from, you know, hamstrings, hip flexors, you know, glute activation. It really is very specific to the individual. And we, we spend some time there. Then in, obviously into our arm activation, which is varied all over the place from, you know, J-bands to plow balls from driveline and to, you know, just shoulder tubes. You've seen it all. It's just really, it's hyper-personalized. And to, to answer your question from there is really the big thing we do is when we get into our throwing program is I don't – Pre-season-wise and in preparation, I put parameters and numbers to what they're doing. When we're in season, such as fall ball, or we're in our, our during our season work, we have just labels and names to our throw, throwing programs. For example, you know, we have a mound day, which would be your bullpen day. It can be your short box. It be, it's called a mound day. Um, it could be a mound catch play as well. Then we have days that ROM days are recovery days. So our recovery days are the emphasis is on recovery. It's, we talk about volume. We talk about intensity. We talk about what you're trying to accomplish. I'm not going to limit you and say you have to do 15 throws, you have to do 30 throws, or you can't do, you know, you don't go above 40. What I really try to do is monitor the workload because I think workload management is really important to the health of your pitchers. And, you know, that isn't just always monitoring mound workloads. It's monitoring how much they throw 
uh, off to the side. So there's a label to it, and it really gives them a guide, but it doesn't really give them a full parameter. It's through trial and error, you know. There's guys that want to make more throws, and, you know, it's, it's not the worst thing for them. Um, when we get into our catch plays, which we, you know, we have catch play where we, we call it connective, uh, that to me is like you just need to play catch where you feel like your pitches are, are connected to where you want them, your delivery is where you want it to be. We do that sometimes just on the mound. We'll, we'll go out and play catch for, you know, the 120, 150, whatever guys want to do that day, and then we just might go to the mound and just play catch on the mound with a with our partner standing up, that they know that the whole purpose and intent behind that is to be connected the next day. And mm-hmm. then we have catch play aggressive. That's where we'll get into some long toss. And really the whole emphasis there is like at the end of it is we're going to throw aggressively. We're going to turn our arm over. You know, does it need to be six reps? Does it need to be ten reps? It, it can be whatever we really need it to be. It's probably not going to be 15, okay, unless mm-hmm. I tell you. But – I, I try not to put so many parameters on guys during the seasons because mound workload's big, obviously, in how they manage themselves. So we, we just really label our throwing programs, you know. And now preseason, yeah, there's a buildup to it. You know, there's a full-blown eight- to ten-week buildup where they follow it because you, you want to make sure that you're not pressing the throttle too much, too fast, you know. So mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time, you know, that's laid out very, very detailed. But in season, it becomes less from that regard. Uh, so you mentioned, so let's say hypothetically the season, if a kid comes out and he's your Sunday guy and he throws, let's say he has a great outing and he's 80 pitches, keep it simple. Can you take us – you're going to have, obviously, the schedule. Can you take us through the rehab as it builds up to the prehab for the next start? So with Sunday being a you, – when you say Sunday pitcher, that would be day seven for me. And Monday would be day one. Right. So – we lay that all out for, for each starter on our staff. Um, our relievers are laid out a little differently. We we have we kind of label that instead of just um, days, we label it as A's and B's, and we also label it as today's Monday, today's Tuesday. There's things that they do certain days of the week. So that that starter would go to day one. We would call it a ROM day. Um, that's a recovery day, uh, very specific recovery throwing program to them. Um, Usually between 30 and 40 throws, it can involve foul balls, it can involve sock throws, it can involve just playing catch with a five-ounce baseball. It really is specific to them. Um, it's, it's a low-intensity day. And then from there, we get really into, you know, some arm care type stuff and into, a, you know, an assessment lift. We call it an assessment lift because the strength coach, you know, spends some time assessing what is needed, what's not, um, where he's at, how he feels, all that stuff. So. That's going to be, you know, it's not going to be your heaviest lift of the week. It's not. Now, the next day, day two, this is when we most of our pitchers take the day off from throwing. They go full-blown arm care that day, and you're probably going, whoa, off day from throwing? I haven't heard that. Well, I kind of equate throwing sometimes to, like, strength training. You know, you do you need some breathers inside there. So um, a lot of guys will take that second day off, and we'll go, like I said, full arm care, and then we, we get into a really good lift that day, um, usually more focused in on the lower body. Day three, when they come back, it's a long toss. Um, if they want to pull down, they can. we can turn that into an aggressive. If it's, now nah, I'm feeling good, I'm a starter, my velocity's good, you know, do you need to throw aggressive? No, we might, might turn it more into a connected day. So it really depends on how we feel about that starting pitcher, you know, and where they are in the year. 
making mm-hmm. their, you know, as far as their volume. Uh, day four or day five, day four or day five are either connected days or mound days, and it really depends on when the guy likes to throw his bullpen. Um, or short box. I'm a huge believer in short box. We we do a lot of short boxes here. So um, a lot of times if guys throw the short box on day four, they'll do a light one on day six before they pitch too. Um, I would assume you do that on flat ground and the mound? No, I just do it on the mound. I mean, okay. I, okay. I really – I'm just a huge believer in training on the mound. And mm-hmm. I don't, I, I really, I don't know if I have all the science to back this up because I think when people test these things, they test them in, you know, at much higher intensities. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously if you're throwing full board on the mound, there's a high intensity and there's a stress put on you. But to play catch on the slope, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure that there's more stress put on the body by playing catch on the slope as if you were to flat ground. I, I really, you know, I, I, it wouldn't make much sense to me. You know, I think it's the output that you're trying to get. So when you play catch on flat grounds, it's, it's a little different feel, especially if you're trying to accomplish something inside a movement pattern and being connected. So we do a lot of those on the mound. We, so what, would the param, what would the parameters of your short box be on, on a typical one for a kid? A typical short box would be our catcher, catchers put their, their heels right on the front of home plate and – we basically will go through what we call a you know, 21-pitch feel-good. That's the start of our, our thing, and that usually involves a three-pitch mix. If there's four in there, we just you know, divide it up a little bit. Um, and then we'll flip to the stretch, finish up with you know, three or so of each pitch in the stretch. And, and then from there, it's really do you need anything else? You know, mm-hmm. Do you want to work a hitter? Do you want to do that? Now, sometimes we'll start in a stretch. You know, it, the main focus you know, if I think the stretch is where you need really need a lot of work, we'll go stretch to the beginning, you know, and then we'll flip back to the to the windup. So there really isn't a steadfast, dead set, seven-day cycle. It's always fluid. And there's a routine there, and you have a routine to rely on, but it needs to be fluid. It really does. Mm-hmm. We get rained out. We get games moved up, you know, and I, I wish in a perfect world we could just lay out all these cycles and they just work nicely, you know, and, right. and maybe <laughs> – and maybe that's the advantage of, you know, working out of, of a facility, you know, in the wintertime. You know, you, you, today's Monday. This is what you're doing. It's, the game's not going to be rained out. There's no competition as far as getting out and playing a baseball game. You can accomplish what you want. And those cycles seem to flow relatively easy. But when you, when you enter the competition mode of the game and weather and how guys feel and workload management, to me, that seven-day cycle, you can lay it out any way you want. It can look real pretty. It better be fluid, and you better be ready to adjust. No, you're working on things during the bullpens, the short boxes, and obviously baseball is being driven with analytics. How much do you, your staff, pay attention to spin rate? I don't know if you guys use the Rapsodo, but it seems like at the minor league baseball level where I'm at, it just seems like it's taking over every single clubhouse. Just can you discuss maybe the usage, if you even use it? Yeah, we use we use a lot of technology. We've been with Rap Soto for quite some time now, five six years at least. Uh, so we do work. We only use the Rap Soto inside our pitching lab, and the reason I do that is because to me, it's where are we? If we're in the bullpen getting ready for a game, I got one thing on my mind, and that's I tell guys, you're you're you are now in a competition mode. So you, you you're not thinking about being over the rubber. You're thinking about where you're going to be over the plate. And I don't want them even thinking about and diving into those numbers. Those numbers to me analytically are are very important. They really are. But they're 
their value is in a training session where there's no getting a hitter out and you're trying to improve that pitch, and they're also very valuable in-game. So using TrackMan for in-game data. And really all you're trying to do is get the information dummied down so that the athlete and the pitcher can understand what maybe their strengths are and what they're good at and then so they can make it great or what they're not so good at and they're throwing too much of or throwing to a certain location where your fastball doesn't have the same life as if you're throwing it to this. So we use a lot of stuff in that regard. And the other thing that we spend a lot of time on with those with TrackMan and RapSoto is it gives us suit measurements. We call them suit measurements. It's, it's our ability to track the release points, the release height, the release angle, the release side, and make sure that there's no – and their spin rates and their velocity and their spin efficiencies and all that stuff, and make sure there's no major red flag coming up where, like, something's really changed. Because a lot of times, you know, when you start looking at average velocity and you see, like, 92.5, 92.3, and you're like, okay, it's still good, still good, and it's a gradual decrease, well, we want to catch that decrease that's happening and, and making this and, and basically go look into the data to see if something something's going on here or look at film and say, ooh, something might be happening to this right now. The average velocity is really dipping and it's dipping because of this or that. Instead of chasing like or unknowingly like, oh, this guy's fine, he's fine, he's fine. Try to catch something before it happens preventively. So right. we use it a lot. We really do. I'm, I'm very fortunate here. I have a, you know, a director of player development that's skilled in it, that, that assists me big time. You know, our video coordinator spends a lot of time gathering film for me and putting it together. You know, those are two areas that we really we really dive into. And we also, you know, we have some a team of students that really helps us design any visual out of those using analytics that could help us basically present anything we wanted if we thought it was very important to the pitcher's development and, and performance. I feel like we could probably talk for two hours alone or something just talking about red flags and, and the pitching motion. But, you know, it's great that you're able to use that in the situation you have to kind of warn off any potential issues or problems in the delivery. That being said, though, and again, we've all been in this situation, what kind of advice would you have to any pitching coaches from the youth league guys all the way up to college who may not have a lot of resources, who may not be able to, their program to even afford a rap soda. Do you have any advice off the top of your head that you can give to those guys? Yeah, I tell you, it's just trust your eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's where a lot of mistakes made. I, I don't just trust the data. The data means nothing to me without what I've seen or, mm-hmm. you know, backing up from, a, from, from an experience. And, you know, coaches, coaches that don't have a lot of experience out there, don't be afraid to ask questions because I think the beauty of our game is the ability to share player experiences. And, and I, I, you know, Paul, I, I get asked this question a lot, you know, and you don't speak at many clinics, you know, and, and, and really the reason I don't is because to me a clinic speak is it's good information, but it's not what I do. You know, mm-hmm. what I do and what we do I think is, you know, when I hear something about a player – I talk to another pitching coach or, you know, a major league pitcher or something, and I ask questions, and I, it starts equating back to me about a certain player that I coach. Player experiences help other players, whether it's a grip, whether it's an arm care exercise, whether it's I saw this in a hitter breaking down his swing. Those experiences, right, lead to more successful people. So as a pitching coach, it shouldn't be much different. You know, the more – you can ask questions, the more research you can do, and ultimately figure out what's important to you. 
because there are so many tentacles of pitching now that you can chase, whether it's velocity, whether it's analytics, spin rates, all this stuff. They all have value. But if you just chase a couple, you're going to find yourself in a real troublesome spot because it's not all it's, – it's a holistic approach to being a successful pitcher. It really is. It's, it's everything involved. So as a youth coach – and it's funny you say this because as a youth coach, it's like – Coaching, you know, as a parent, it's like parenting, you know, a baby to an infant, toddler to a kid, child. There's a growth that takes place. You're obviously not going to give your baby the same amount of information as you give a 10-year-old kid. You wouldn't give a 10-year-old kid the same information you give an 18-year-old kid. So it's understanding what level you're at and where you're at to, you know, to really get them to understand. I mean, and the more, the younger they are, you think, oh, I'm going to keep it simple. And the more, you know, the more they are, I'm going to get more information. Sometimes that's not always the answer either. Mm-hmm. The simpler you can keep it, the better off be. So my advice is learn the technology if you can, but don't you don't have to rely on the technology. Mm-hmm. The uh, one of the things you mentioned I think is great is is how courteous and people are in our profession. It's it's different than other sports. I mean, uh, when I first started coaching, I would reach out to guys that I had no business reaching out to just through email or a phone call, and nine out of ten guys get back to you and will do anything that they can to help you. And I find out football is completely different than that. Guys are pretty secretive, and it's like, don't come near my facility or my playbook when I coach football, but baseball is completely different. <laughs> I just think it's the beauty of our game, too. You know, you just yeah. think about people. They're like, I just love to talk baseball. You right. Know, from the average fan to, you know, just if you've – if you've participated in this game, it's just it's something you talk about. You mentioned earlier drills. What I've done in the past, I've had a staff, is I've had individual files of each kid, and you know, this is what this kid does well. This is what this kid works on. Here are some of the red flags with this kid, which I'm sure you're doing something similar or better. And that being said, you know, I had drills where these, this kid bottoms out with his lead side. This kid doesn't use his backside enough. This kid is arm dragged. Do you have any specific dr- drills that you use either uniformly with your team or on an individual basis that you're, you think are great or that you would like to pass on other coaches? I don't, you know, the big thing, Paul, is I don't just do drills to do drills. Drills are right. drills are a dangerous animal, if you ask me, because when you start looking at pitching and understanding movement, you know, there's there's a coordination and an integration that needs to take place. So, you know, I, I don't really have a dead set of drills. I have a library of drills that I refer to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I see, you know, basically a disconnect that I think needs addressing, then I kind of go to some drills that I think are, you know, that I think could be helpful. Um, and again, we do those drills both on and off the mound. <laughs> but at the same time, it, it really, it's, it's. I have two choices as a coach. I create this drill for him to do the pitcher, and I'm hoping he implicitly learns it by the environment I've created. The body's going to organize itself. Or I really need him to understand this drill and learning to take place because this is a piece that he needs. So I have to explain it in a way that he understands it and also create some variation inside it so learning takes place. So those are really the two ways that I go. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, anytime you can you can work on, you know, the pronation of the arm out front and the finish, it, the D-cell pattern to me is probably the most important piece if I was going to prescribe drills, mm-hmm. throwing drills for guys. Because – we can all prescribe like drills that chase velocity and velocity is great. But you know, if, if you can throw with velocity, but if you don't have a good D cell pattern, you're probably not going to throw hard very long. Right. Your body's just not going to let you do that. So, 
if you can go the other way and really build your decel patterns, become a better pitcher, and then velocity starts to come or you, you start to work on it a little bit, you know, you feel safer and better and, and in, a, in a much better position. So um, the areas that I would really pay a lot of attention to if I was in drills, number one, obviously, would be the decel. Number two is the back leg. You know, mm-hmm. if you really want to get your pitcher right, get the setup and get the initial move right, you got a much better chance. That doesn't mean there can't be a disconnect later down the road, but you got a much better chance to eliminate a lot of that stuff. If it's broken from the beginning, it's all going to be broken. Right. You know, so. I used to say the prescription has to fit the illness. You know, you could come up with the drill and give it to a kid, but all of a sudden if it's not needed or it's not addressing what he needs, it's just exercise. And if it's something that is definitely not needed, you could, like as you had mentioned, you could potentially do more harm than good. Um, right. when, you're talk- when you're talking about a D-cell pattern, you, you try to explain to kids, listen, it, it's important that your arm accelerates, but it's also important that it slows down the right way. And sometimes, you know, in the past I've used the, the car and the brake type thing. If you're the kind of guy that constantly pumps the brake kind of hard, that car is going to break down. And you try to explain that to especially the younger kids, and they, they're able to grab onto and they're able to get it. But it sounds like a lot of what you're doing, you know, obviously is working and working at a high level. But how much does the mental game come into play with your kids and how often do you address it with them whether it's everything from handling and adversity whether it be in the game or during the course of the season down to mental preparation all the way up to maybe in something as high level as visualization or imagery how how often do you guys discuss that every day awesome every awesome. single day i mean i we don't preach it i, I spend 15 to 20 minutes on average some days are a little shorter obviously just because but we have all sorts of variations of meditation. We call it presence, and it's, you know, we just spend time. Um, sometimes I walk them through. Sometimes I bring in a podcast. Sometimes I just let them get in empty space. I mean, I just think that in order to equip our, especially this generation, and I really hate to point fingers at them, but and it's not their fault. You know, they, they were born and raised in a generation where, you know, the cell phone hit the scene, and it's, you know, it's been pretty much proven that, you know, there's a lot of stimulus that these, these young kids deal with now and a lot of social anxieties through the phone and, you know, just, you know, all sorts of stimulations. It's almost like they can never shut their brain down. I mean, um, I just read a great book, The Power of the Agency, Power, The Power of Agency, which one chapter talked about this, and it just blew my mind away uh, how many ads subliminally they're exposed to and just the anxieties and the pressure. So their coping device Nowadays, for us, we would go sit, you know, the older generation, I hate to date ourselves, we, you know, we would take a walk or we'd find, we'd go outside and play, do something different, you know. We couldn't really turn to something um, as quickly as they do their phone. And their phone becomes their coping mechanism. And it really, really, what happens is inside that mechanism is they're now exposed to who knows what, these search engines and all that stuff. So what I try to do is eliminate in their, in their fast-paced lives Sometimes it's 15 minutes of just quiet, and we start every day with it. Um, mm-hmm. It's our early work, and it's got a lot of variation. We've used Alan Yeager multiple times via Skype. We've talked to him about it, different techniques. And it's, again, it's just like our pitching format, just trying to give them techniques that they can use to focus in on it and, and to use out on the mound. You know, they can, they can feel themselves. Their heart rate's getting a little out of control. You know, can they just focus in on their breath and the transition inside their breath? You know, do they have a focal point? You know, and, and, and God rest his soul, Ken Revisit, he was outstanding at this stuff, grandfatherly, mm-hmm. you know, just teaching these guys this. But 
it, you know, he, he, they talk about slowing the game down and the techniques. And every, it's, to me, it's every guy's going to have a different way, you know. And, and really, it's eliminating drama. As Alan Yeager calls it, it's like candy for these kids. You walk into a store and, you know, as a four-year-old kid, five-year-old kid, you, you want a piece of candy. You, you can't wait to leave the store with candy. It's like, and that's for, that's for our generation athletes, that's, that's drama. That's mm-hmm. all they have in their life. You know, as, you're, as an adult, you don't walk in the store and buy candy. Even if you go in there, you don't even notice candy at the time. <laughs> right. You know, because it becomes less dramatized in your life. And, and it's not their fault. It's really not. We have to, you know, our job is to give them the tools to, to offset that so that they can cope, deal with what they need to deal with in life. And I think that this era, it's, it's, it's actually, I've always thought it was important. I think it's even more important. You had over 25 players get drafted uh, under your tutelage, and you mentioned all the tools with the the prehab and the rehab after starts and the mental side. Just how does that all fall under the umbrella of helping some of these athletes be able to make it to that next level? Well, you know, I think more than anything, you know, this is Coach Corbin. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to, you know, work under one of the best and probably one of the best coaches in college sports period, you know, not alone just baseball. I'm talking about, you know, running a college athletic program. And the whole intention behind building, you know, the young man is, is to, to make them successful human beings, make them a strong man, make them a leader of their family. And when you spend time constantly building the mind and not just focusing on the physical attributes and, and really focusing in on being a good teammate and good social human being and treating others with respect and character and culture and all that stuff we talk, we talk about daily along with the physical tool sets that a lot of our players possess because, you know, we have to be honest, too. We, we do get some of the better baseball players in the country, you know. So it, it is it's, – it's really, you know, we're, we're fine-tuning some young men that have been blessed with some really good abilities. So we, we don't want to discount their, their, their participation in this either. So uh, – but – you know, it, it really does, it really gets the focus in on just daily growth. That's all it is. We don't show up here trying to get drafted. And our objective, you know, is you're going to become a better human being and, you know, we're going to build a better team. And at the end of the day, your baseball career will take you where it takes you. And if you use these tools when you get to professional baseball, it's going to help you even more, and, you're, and you'll reach your end goal, which I'm sure and it really isn't a goal. It's a dream, you know, to play in a major league. And for us college people, it's a dream of, you know, winning a national championship. It, uh, it keeps your eyes on the road, so to speak. Very, you know, you're not chasing anything. You're just you're driving along. The, uh, Scott, you miss the snow? I miss the snow? Do you miss the snow? Absolutely not. I mean, I look at Syracuse <laughs> I shoveled six, eight inches of snow. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I ever want to see that stuff again. Tell you. I was driving home this past Sunday. My wife, and my daughter, in the car, and we were, we got four inches of snow, and it was starting to come down. And I said, to my wife, I, go, I said, I know I'm throwing some blurry days out here. I said, but you know what I've been going on right now in junior high for me? She said, what? I said, the phones, the house phones would have been ringing off the hook, and everybody would have been saying, meet down the football field, meet down the football field. And she said, why? I said, because it's so much fun to play football in the the sleet and the snow. Well, and, I miss those days, Paul. I miss when I was a kid <laughs> playing you know, in the snow. I don't understand. I don't miss it now. Yeah, but uh, what I, the reason I bring it up is because I, I went, came home, and then I stopped over a buddy of mine's house, and he's got two kids, uh, one's 11 and one's 13. And I walked into the house, and there were four kids uh, between the ages of 11 and 14, all sitting on the couch, all staring at their own phones. 
and, and I understand technology is important and it's not going there. It's fine. But I, I do completely agree with you that it has to be limited to a certain extent. And, you know, I'm glad to see that when you mentioned the 15 minutes of quiet, you know, how how you guys are teaching the kids to step away from it for a little bit and how it could benefit you as a baseball player. It just it makes your life. I mean, you know, we've all done it. You know, you get into yeah. you get into a point of anxiety in your life. We we see quiet. Adults yeah. that have been grow up in that generation see quiet. These these guys go right to their phones. What yeah. can I read? Do I have a hundred fifty <laughs> likes on this Instagram right. I put out there? You know, and yeah. it's um it's not their fault. It's right. not. We we've, right. we've created it, and we just we just need to give them tool set to to make them aware of it. You know, it's. It's an addiction. It kind of is an addiction, you know. It really is when you think about it. Uh, you mentioned monitoring the pitch total, spring, the summer, and fall. I guess I have two points to this. I'm not sure where we would be on that. If you this would agree, I, I kind of take the notion that it might be based on something that Doc Andrews might have recommended years ago. When I have kids from my academy or when travel ball that come by, I always say we need to multiply the age by 100. And they'll say to me, "What do you mean?" And I'll say, "Well, if you have a nine-year-old kid, he should throw no more than 900." competitive pitches in a, in a year from January to December. If the kid were 16, for example, he's got 1,600 pitches. And once you reach that number, you shut him down. You want the kid to have a, a bright future ahead of him. And they, unfortunately, we've seen kids that play on multiple travel ball teams at the same time, which is unfortunate. They kind of put themselves in a position where they can get hurt. So I try to explain to the parents or the other coaches, and I'll say that this is the number. You know, I said if uh, if if I were in your place and I had a son, I wouldn't be the crazy parent hanging out by the dugout keeping his stats, but I would keep track of how many pitches he's throwing in a year. So I guess the first part is, do you, do you agree with that? And if you know, what's your position on that? And then secondly, how do you monitor the yearly pitch load with your guys? I don't. I I've heard that before. I haven't really paid attention to it. I will tell you this: my I have a ten-year-old son. Um, that pitches and, and plays baseball and this upcoming year will be really his first year of like travel baseball. Mm-hmm. But the, um, I will tell you this is that, you know, he as a young kid, you know, he'll pitch this year. I, I will monitor his workload because I've, I've seen how many innings he's pitched and stuff like that now. And what I try to do is, you know, I don't want to really go above like a, a 15 to 20% increase. And I really handle my pitchers the same way. Um, as far as their workload of innings pitched, you know. But we take into account because we keep track of it, and we just put a very, you know, subjective deal on this. We, we label innings stress innings, you know, and, and stress time. So if there's a high abundance of stress innings, now pitching in Omaha, regardless, is a stressful inning, mm-hmm. you know, because of the environment. So, you know, you, 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 you automatically, if you pitch seven innings and start, you got seven stressful innings on you. Any real postseason game facing elimination or anything puts you in a stressful environment, mm-hmm. regardless of what you think. So we pay attention to that. And if we feel like it's, you know, increased enough, you know, then we'll, we'll shut it right down and, and go into that, you know, off-season mode. I will tell you that I think one of the, one of the mistakes we make in the workload management of our athletes is we compare nine-year-old kids to major league pitchers. And absolutely, they're all different. There's no question that younger kids need more time off. If you want to recommend three to four months off, that should be your nine-year-old kid, in my opinion. He, there's no reason for them to throw. Their bodies are growing. They're playing other sports, hopefully. There's no reason for them to throw all year round. 
18-year-old kid, you got to use your judgment, physical maturity, where they play in, how much have they thrown, what do they need, how do they feel, their delivery, where it needs to be, is it efficient, you feel like, you know, those types of things. And they, to me, I give my guys anywhere between six to eight weeks off. I do give them a couple deload patterns during the year, um, but we go six to eight weeks off. Some get a tick more, depending on, you know, if they end at the end of the season. But what you're finding with major league pitchers is they're not taking as much time off. And what they're taking time off is from the mound more than anything. They, mm-hmm. You know, I was just talking to Jack Blair today. He's like, I'm just in my, I started my throwing program. I'm doing a life throwing program. I mean, so he took a month off, month, I think five weeks, he said, some today. I'm like, from just no throwing, and now he's just easing back into it. So I think major league pitchers have realized that the more time they can give themselves just throwing and, you know, then you got guys like Scherzer and Bauer, like, I'm not taking them, I'll take one week off. That's it. Right. But I think they're monitoring their intensity really, really well, obviously. But I do think it's something you really have to pay attention to. There's no question that overuse and, you know, not getting enough recovery time are the two leading factors in injury. You know, we can say it's movement patterns and velocity and that, but we're not giving enough time. We're overworking it. You know, what's so, the what's the role of summer ball with you when it all comes into that? Because you had a kid that had thrown a ton of innings or a ton of pitches in the spring. He might not be as apt to go on a summer ball versus a kid who didn't see a lot of time. I just asked the question, what does this player need? Gotcha. Does he need experience? Does he need to throw his change up more? Is he is he pretty solid pitcher that he can come back, take the summer off, work in the fall for us on his change up and be ready to go in the spring? You know, what does he need? Is like you just said, does he throw seven innings and he needs to get some work in? It just—it really boils down individually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a lot of great knowledge here, especially the mental side of it. I mean, that's such a big part of the game. I feel like a lot of younger athletes, and even in the lower minor leagues, just kind of overlook. And I think that's just a, a really good tidbit of information there. Side of one of this podcast that we were going to end each podcast with something we call the Bandbox Inquisition. <laughs> Nine questions we ask each coach that comes on. So I'm looking forward to hearing your answers. So our first question is. As a coach, how do you define success? Consistency. What is your greatest moment in coaching? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, I don't want to irritate anybody, but it's fresh. I mean, you know, hugging on the field 2019 national championship. What's the best piece of advice you could give to another coach? Awareness. Mm-hmm. What was the worst moment of your coaching career, and what did you learn from it? Uh, worst moment of my coaching career. Wow. Um, probably when I didn't hear Coach Corbin tell me not to take a pitcher out. And what I learned from it is you, you don't hear the head coach tell you not to take the pitcher out. Don't cross the white line because you can always go back to the dugout. <laughs> go on. What excites you the most about coaching? Just the everyday interaction with the players and, and, and really seeing really seeing their experience play out the way that they hope and dream it does. If you could have a conversation with any person in civilization, whom would it be and why? Oh, um, conversation with any human being. I'm going to go Bruce Springsteen. Wow. You're not from New Jersey, though, are you? Nope. I'm just going to (laughs) go why because I just want to know what the passion's like to show up and perform like that for your entire life. That's true. That's true. What is the most difficult or challenging part about being a baseball coach? The unknown, the ability to adjust whatever it may be, whether human element of umpires, opposition, just, you know, that's the most challenging. 
What is the most rewarding part of being a coach? Uh, I don't mean I hate to reciprocate an answer, but it's really just it's it's seeing your players, you know, and get the experience that they they dream about. Two questions left. What's one good piece of advice you could give to the players about life? The most important decision in your life is who you marry. Uh, that you marry. Well, you definitely get some brownie points with that answer. I hope. It's 100. I'm not. I'm just telling you <laughs> that is the, the decision that shapes your life. You know, whatever it may be, whatever you want, that's you better make sure that's the person that has the same views. The same. I mean, it's just the most important decision in your life. Last question. Finally, at the end of your career, what would you have liked your players to have said about you? Showed up every day in the same mood and was consistent. Awesome. Well, so again, Scott, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I think this was a great conversation. It was exciting. It gave us a lot of information and a lot of things to think about, especially for pitching coaches and young pitching coaches coming up in the game. And if I don't talk to you anytime soon, I wish uh, you and your family a great Christmas and best of luck in the next season. You too, Paul. I thank both of you guys. I mean, I really enjoyed it. Great catching up. And wish everybody out there a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays this year. Awesome. Best of luck, man. Take care. Talk to you soon. Have a good one, Scott. Thanks again to Scott Brown for speaking with us today on Episode 4 of the Bandbox Baseball Podcast. One of the things, Corey, I wanted to mention that we talked about at the outset of the podcast, and I hope no one got the wrong impression when I was talking about his path from the Division Three level to the Division One level. We are surrounded by a lot of Division Three schools in the Northeast, and not 1970 anymore. I think the, the benefit now is you're seeing kids of all different types of abilities at all types of uh, levels of college baseball. You know, right in our backyard here, we have a Division three school. I think they've had eight guys drafted in the last 10 years. And with the proliferation of the Internet and the social media, you know, we've seen guys go to different levels of baseball for different reasons. So I don't think anymore that you have to be at a certain level to be a certain type of a player. Or, you know, if you go to one level over another, it means you're a better player than another. I just wanted to talk about typically, you know, the bigger schools, especially the ones with football, uh, have more resources than a lot of the smaller schools do when it really comes down to funding. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even here in the minor league level, you come across players that have gone to Division two, Division three schools. Uh, our closer for the Blue Rocks, uh, Tad Ratliff, went to Lenore Ryan University, a D2 school in North Carolina, and he was an all-star this year. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter where you go. And as you mentioned, the social media, the Internet, um, really can help expand um, the chances of these players to get noticed. And, I think it's, it's trickling all the way up to the major leagues. You're seeing the Yankees and all these uh, other teams looking at college pitching coaches that have never played the game. And, you know, they may not have even played at the professional level, but as you said, it's not that old school mentality of, oh, if you never played the game at this level, you're not good enough to coach at it. And I think that's a positive turn for the sport. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things I like to always tell our kids is, like life, baseball players mature at different rates. And, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a kid who's a six foot, 160 pounds in high school, and not a lot of people were interested in him. And then you blink, and now he's all of a sudden throwing upper 80s and having a very successful college career. And uh, that's something that you try to get these kids to understand and buy into when you're working with them. That as long as you're willing to work at it and improve, you know, you're going to get opportunities. So uh, another great, again, another great podcast, another great conversation I felt with Scott. Looking forward to our podcast next week where we'll be uh, interviewing Greg Legg, who is a coach and a manager of the Philadelphia Phillies organization. Yeah, looking forward to speaking with Greg. I know he's a fan favorite, especially up in uh, Northeast PA growing up. I remember going to baseball camps where Greg was there. So uh, looking forward to speaking with him next week for sure. Great. All right. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Bandbox Baseball Podcast.